So I'd like to return this session to familiar ground. Once again, mindfulness of breathing. Same method this morning. But to put a little bit of context to it. Such a simple practice. Just attending to the sensations arising in the body, but in so doing, by attending to the sensations, we're doing something quite dramatic, quite wonderful, really. And that is, we're not identifying with them. When we're identifying with the body, we're not attending to sensations. We just say, I hurt, I feel bad, my knee feels, I, 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 I got a real headache. In other words, it's total, this nice phrase from psychology, cognitive fusion. The fusion of our very sense of identity, the fusion of our awareness, with something that is not I and which is not awareness either. So then why fuse something to things that are in fact not the same? That's, that in fact is literally confusion, fusing together in a disorderly and misleading way. Right? And so, if we ask what's the second noble truth, it is the, these aggregates that are these contaminated aggregates driven, that is created by the power of karma and klesha, therefore contaminated. But the real point, there's nothing we can do about that, really, for the time being. I mean, that's just kind of the residue, the results of our past karma. But the, what we can do something about, zakche, we can't do anything about. That is, it's a done deal. Here it is. Here's the skandhas. But nyewar limba means closely held, closely held. And what that really means simply is identification. We are these closely held, identified with aggregates, the aggregates with which we strongly identify as being, in a very serious, real way, I or mine, right? And in this simple practice, we're not even talking wisdom yet, and yet, and yet it's slipping in the back door. As we're attending to the sensations of the breath, we're attending to them, therefore we're not identifying with them. And so what I'm encouraging here is that in this simple practice, I mean, it's so deliciously simple, you can teach this to a five-year-old, and they'll get it, you know? Keep it, teach it, keep it short, keep it short sessions. Um, is that we are developing an I-it relationship. Many of you know this Martin Buber, I-it, I-you, I-thou, or the I-it relationship, which is utterly dehumanizing and destructive when we attend to another sentient being as an it. Well, it's terrible. It's, really, it's the worst. That's perfect. But to attend to one's body as an it, that's perfectly fine. The body, a cell phone, a piece of wood, whatever, they are its, so why not regard them as its, right? Likewise, the sensations of the breath from the body, that's also an it. It's not nothing I or my about it. It's not me. It's an it. So attend to that as an it. Right. And so that's just for starters. That's just for starters. But we see the continuum of it. We, we slipped into a stream here. And the stream is just going to go deeper and deeper. So we're like up at the headwaters of the stream where it's quite shallow. And then we're just going to follow that down. This is the stream of the Dharma, not the stream of modernity. And as you go down and down and down, it's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. Because, as you well know, as you introduce the theme of introspection of the Xixing, as you're monitoring the mind, as you're attending primarily to the cessations of the breath, you're noting the thoughts, images, laxity, excitation. But they too are not I, they're not mine. They're just, they are just exactly what they were said to be. Laxity, excitation, thoughts, images, that's all they are. They're not a person and there's nothing about them that makes them mine. And so already there in the simple practice of mindfulness breathing with these two faculties of mindfulness and introspection, we're also developing an I-it relationship with the events taking place in our own minds. 
the thoughts, images, excitation, laxity, nothing to feel bad about or to be frustrated, like, oh, my, my, not cool it with my, my business. It's just laxity and excitation. Button it up. It's just laxity. Has no owner. You simply happen to be in the proximity. You happen to be in the neighborhood of the laxity and excitations arising, and therefore there's something you can do about it. But you don't own it. You're not to blame for it. Nothing to feel bad about. And so we're developing an I-it relationship there. You'll notice in Shantideva, in his classic work, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, he's very emphatic about developing an I-it relationship with all of the mental afflictions, all 84,000 of them. An I-it relationship. That is, I'm not going to own you. I'm not going to own you. I'm certainly not going to say you are mine. I'm not, I'm not going to say I am anger, I am lust, I am delusion. I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. But I'm not, also not going to own you. In fact, I disown you. I disown you. You're looking for a host, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be your host anymore. That's not true. You'll still arise in the field of my awareness, but I'm sorry, I'm not your daddy anymore, or your mummy, or your owner. We just happen to be sharing the space. That's it. An I-it relationship with your mental afflictions. But it's kind of a gnarly, you know the word? Gnarly, a bit kind of tough, kind of tough I-it relationship. Because he basically says, Hello, mental afflictions. Count your days. Your days are numbered. I'm going to be more persistent than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm getting stronger. You're not. Do the math. <laughs> you know, he's pretty, he's pretty tough. He's saying, where, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? When I don't, when I don't know, where are you going to go? Where are you going to take refuge if you have no place in my mind? You're going to, you're going to, so an I it met with mental addiction is a really good idea. Really good idea. And I was, as I was meditating just before this, I just thought of one of my favorite verses from Shantideva. And I'm going to quote it. I happily was able to get the little uh, Telstra or whatever, the, uh, working on my cell phone, so I didn't have to bring my big computer. Just one verse. <laughs> this is really choice. You ready? It's really choice. It's from the third chapter. And it's verse 11. And he writes, as a result of surrendering everything, there is nirvana, and my mind seeks nirvana. Surrendering everything at once, this is the greatest gift to sentient beings. I think that could be the whole text from my perspective. It's so rich, incredibly rich. I'm going to read it once more. As a result of surrendering everything, what does surrendering mean? Of course, it doesn't mean kicking them out, you know, like, you know, my, you know. No, it just means releasing all grasping, releasing all attachment, releasing all ownership, all identification, surrendering, letting it go, letting it all go, you know. As a result of that, there is nirvana. In a way, then, it's not something achieved, it's what's left over, what manifests when you release the grasping that veils it. You know? There is nirvana, and my mind seeks nirvana. We get so derailed by our hopes and fears, aspirations, longing, attachments, craving, and so forth, for all kinds of stuff out there. As we become attached to people and places and prestige and body and so forth and so on, what the mind is always wishing for, as we go out of one detour after another, out of one dead end to another dead end, what we're always seeking for is 
This, of course, is the Mahayana text. So it's not just like that. I like that so much when I take something on my, on my Mac, when I take something off the dock, it, it goes like that. And it kind of, where did it go? And it didn't go anywhere. It's, it's just gone. That little icon, what do they call it? You know, a little icon, but the extra one. You got the other one in your hard drive, but literally, it just. I really like that. <laughs> That's just releasing, right? But this is a Mayana text. So it's not just that we're releasing, which is what you, if, you're, if your sole aspiration is just, I want liberation, I want out, I want nirvana, I want to never come back, then just, just release it. Like you just pull it off your dock. It's gone. A little puff. Like that. But if you're following the Mayana, then all your possessions, your goods, your virtues, your wealth, your everything good in your life, everything you identify with, better than just go, what does he say? Surrendering everything at once. This is the greatest gift to sentient beings. In other words, you're, giving it, you're not just giving it up, you're giving it away. Right? My body, my speech, my virtues, from all the three times. And that was everything in the future, any merit that I might conceivably Accumulate in the future, all of it, in one fell swell, just like that. But not just poof into nothing, but poof out, offering all sentient beings. What an amazing ideal. Really extraordinary. I can't, I can't really think of anything higher than that. So as we return then, feet on the ground, to this mindfulness of breathing, come back to it and find this nice balance. On the one hand, just utterly at ease, that is, the stillness of awareness is so truly effortless, insofar as there's no grasping. It's just that, insofar as it's grasping. This is what's left over. You don't have to release grasping and then do something else. Just release grasping. And what's left over, just like he says, surrendering everything all at once, that's nirvana. Well, release all grasping, and then the stillness of your awareness is what's left over, which means you don't have to give any effort to that at all. The only effort, and it's a very subtle effort, is just releasing all the grasping, right? So there's the primary emphasis, once again, that releasing. But from that vantage point, then let the light of your awareness, almost like a kind of waterfall, like flowing downwards, flow downwards here to the abdomen, the gentle rise and fall of the abdomen. And then again, just resting here, then as if you, you're just turning on the computer to do something while you're, you know, while you're doing something else. Okay, computer, you know, calculate this or do that, download this file, you know. You don't have to do it, just tell the computer to download a file and it does it. You can just sit there, right? Well, in a similar fashion, really. Just have your mind download the file of mind, have some instructions for you. Hey, it, yes, you, mind, listen. At the end of each inhalation, just count one, go to ten. Do not confuse yourself, don't go beyond. Get it? If you screw up, I'm going to bring you back. You know, just give it simple instructions. And then let the mind do that. In other words, you don't need to keep on you know, monitoring, managing, taking control. The mind will just do it. Just give it the instructions. And then you just rest there. And to wrap this all up, is as you're just resting there, then in fact, 
to the best of your ability, you're surrendering everything. You're surrendering, surrendering your body, that is releasing all attachment, grasping, identification with the body, with the breathing, with thoughts, and anything else that comes to mind. And you're just resting there. So, it's in this mode, this kind of this quasi-zokchen mode to a mode of the mindfulness of breathing, very much in the, in the vein or in the theme of shamatha without a sign, it's much more a matter of discovering shamatha rather than developing it, like, like constructing a building, first the ground floor and the second floor and so forth, and building Mount Shamatha, or the nine-story building of shamatha. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But another one is just let everything fall away. Like, here's, here's an analogy, and then I'll stop. But I was just in Florence a couple of days ago, or a couple of weeks ago, rather, and, uh, and so I, had, so I was in the Uffizi, and it was the Uffizi Gallery. And even though Michelangelo's David is not there, you know, it's the buzz, it's the buzz in town, it's just down the road. But it's said that Michelangelo, when he was about to carve David or his other great masterpieces, uh, that he would have that great block of stone there, marble, and he would see already what he wanted to carve. And all he was doing then was just taking away everything apart from that. And so he just chipped off everything that wasn't what he was visualizing. And what was left was David. You know, Rather than having this notion of carving David, he just chipped away everything that wasn't David, and David was left. It's quite nice. Oh, yeah. So please find a comfortable position. very first moment as you enter into the practice, if you do so with a sense of trust, of confidence, in the Buddha's own teachings, in the lineage, in the Buddha himself, and you are indeed entrusting your, your life, your existence, your path to awakening to the Buddha, the Three Jewels, then every breath you are, in fact, following in the footsteps of the Buddha. It's not just a breath. The breath is imbued with taking refuge. And likewise, bodhicitta. Insofar as that's in the background, insofar as your practice is imbued with bodhicitta. In Tibetan, chanchikisenki zimba. When that's the underlying, quiet, implicit, motivating force behind the practice, every breath you're setting out on the Bodhisattva way. With this refuge in Bodhicitta, settle your body, speech, and mind in natural states.
the course of the session introspection entails not monitoring not only the flow of mindfulness, but also intermittently monitoring the body, including the face. See that the eyes remain soft, all the muscles of the face loose and relaxed, a spaciousness in the forehead, an openness between the eyebrows. Check up intermittently to see that contraction is not setting in. As you're attending to the sensations of the breath, also introspectively note whether the breath is flowing effortlessly, breathing as if you're deep asleep, breathing as if you're having an out-of-body experience, observing the body breathe, but exerting no control or influence over the breathing process itself, effortless, unimpeded. Begin the practice at the beginning of the practice. I would suggest not making a habit of spending five or more minutes kind of easing your way in with a mind wandering all over the place. But in this practice, from the very beginning, one brief count at the end of each inhalation. Set the program and let it run one through ten, one through ten. And between counts, let the mind be as silent as possible and your awareness as still as possible. So just enough, enough effort to maintain continuity of mindfulness of the sensations of the breath throughout the entire course of the in-breath and the entire course of the out-breath. Just enough not to disengage from the sensations of the breath.
thoughts are bound to arise. They're not yours. You're not responsible for them. They just happen. And when you retrospectively note that your attention has been carried away, you can make a habit of letting your first response be just to relax, loosen up. And then if that thought still has its, its talons in you, still holding onto you, release. And then return to the present moment and to the, to the object of mindfulness. The sensations of the breath at the level of the abdomen as it rises and falls, falls expands and contracts with each in and out breath. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
naso. Oh, naso. As I'm sure all of you know, there's within the Buddhist context there's a very wide array of discursive meditations, or sometimes they're called analytical meditations, involving cogitation, thinking, remembering, are designed to arouse an authentic motivation, uh, spirit of emergence, the Ninjun, initiation, and so forth. And so the Lamrim is full of that. And then the four thoughts are turned, the four thoughts are turned the mind, really all oriented there. And then we have had this wide array of practices also designed to arouse, to cultivate the four measurables, to cultivate bodhicitta, and so on. All very, all very, very meaningful, very effective. They've proven themselves to be effective for many, many centuries. It's all medicine and it works, on the one hand. On the other hand, I've been leading these, you know, little bit long retreats, three-month retreats, two-month two, two retreats for a number of years now. And I know from my own experience, but it's very interesting as I attend to other people engaging in fairly intensive practice for a non-trivial amount of time, two or three months, that simply by doing practice like this, mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, and so forth, I've seen this happen so many times that I, I have to take it very seriously, let alone my own practice. And that is by simply going deeper and deeper into such practice and getting the taste of it, getting the experience of it, seeing some of the benefits of it, let alone achieving shamatha, just getting some experience, that lo and behold, priorities start to shift. You know, priorities start to shift. What was valued is not as valued as much, was, wasn't valued so much is now valued. Basically a shift of prioritization more towards dharma, away from the, the fixation on hedonic pleasures, gratification and so forth. I've seen it happen so many times now. And it's kind of quite interesting, a little bit, a little bit mysterious, not very. But a little mysterious, and there you are, you're just you're observing your breath, right? It is in-breath, out-breath, you're observing thoughts, images, one, one after another coming up. And the weeks go by, weeks go by, and then people start thinking, I think I want to reshuffle my life around, I want to shift this priority, I want to have more time for retreat, I'd like to do this, do that. It's quite obvious in a way, really, what's happening, and that is you're tapping into a deeper reality here, a tapping into a deeper sense of well-being, you're tapping into a deeper sense of meaning. And my mind seeks nirvana, you know, Shantideva. And we're not finding nirvana, but we're finding maybe the fragrance. We're finding something that's in the same continuum. And we're seeing that it just wasn't out there, never was. Out there, in all those appearances, all those objects, all those things that we might acquire. It's just not there. And I've seen it also happen. People just practicing mindfulness of breathing and then just finding the heart is opening. Or one woman who was so touching, it was years ago, in one of the eight-week retreats in Phuket, uh, just very shortly, but she was going into a practice and she, she told me that she did not really regard herself as a very loving person. She was a bit, you know, a bit strong, determined, kind of like that, you know, alpha female kind of thing. You know? That's how she conceived of herself. It's not my judgment. And then she, I remember she came to, for one of the weekly meetings and she had just this wonderful expression, such, such happiness on her face. And she said, over this last week I had a session where just a, an uprising, a, a flowing forth of unconditional love came up and just swept, swept me away. And I never knew I had it in me. 
she hadn't, it wasn't that she was cultivating, 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 getting better, getting better. Ooh, I succeeded. It was just practicing mindfulness of breathing, and then just something opened. And she said, wow, now everything is different. I know I have that in me. Of course it passed. It wasn't steady state. But nevertheless, she said, oh, I do have this capacity. It's warm, it's loving, it's deep, it's genuine, and it's definitely of the nature of loving-kindness. And so loving-kindness, too, can clearly come out of that. In fact, in the Pali Canon, it's in the, oh, one of the discourses of the Buddha. There's a pretty strong implication that, that this, what he called the Babasajitta, actually it's Karasa, Rusakisem, Babasajitta, Prabhasajitta in Sanskrit. This, in the, in the, from the Pali, they translate it as the brightly shining mind the brightly shiny mind. And the Buddha is quite clear when he was using this term, uh, although he didn't use the term bhavanga, the later commentator saw, well, that's what he's referring to. And the bhavanga, I would say with actually very strong confidence, is the same as the substrate consciousness. And what the Buddha was getting at it is this bhavanga, because he doesn't speak in the Pali Canon about Buddha nature, dharmakaya, tathatakagarbha, primordial consciousness, there's no references to that, zero. But he does speak of this continuum of consciousness, that he said, by nature is pure, transparent, uh, trans transparent, luminous, by nature pure, adventitiously covered, obscured now and then by mental afflictions and so forth, but its nature is pure. And he gave a strong implication, and this is actually the wellspring of loving-kindness, and it is this that is the wellspring that inspires you to actually seek truth, to find liberation, and not just get caught up in one samsaric trip after another. Quite interesting. So as I kind of look back on this, uh, valuing, I think as much as I ever did, the many marvelous, deep, and I think very transformative discursive meditations, for example, in the Lamrim, in the words of, words of my perfect teacher, Kampopas Lamrim, Songkopas Lamrim, and so forth and so on, uh, and the, the meditations designed to arouse, to cultivate renunciation of bodhicitta. At the same time, my view here is kind of like it seems to me those are kind of like something to kickstart the engine. Like on a motorcycle, you know, old-fashioned motorcycle, you go, rrr, 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 and, then, and, then it, and then you don't have to keep them on kicking, right? Because it, then it's, it's kicked on, now, now it just runs. My sense of it is, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I kind of think maybe not entirely crazy wrong, is that these discursive meditations are designed to give us enough incentive that we actually get down to it and start exploring the nature of the mind. And if we do it with enough perseverance and dedication and pure motivation and so forth, that in fact then renunciation starts to flow right out of the nature of awareness, loving-kindness for measurables flow right out of the nature of awareness, bodhicitta flows right out of the nature of awareness. As Dujum Lingba says in the Vajra Essence, bodhicitta is called relative bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta in, this, in the Dzogchen context. That is nothing other than Rigpa. So tap into Rigpa, identify Rigpa. And he says, with a bit of irony actually, he, he elaborates on this point, it's in, in the book, Stilling the Mind, that why are you looking for bodhicitta elsewhere? By some discursive meditation, oh, sentient beings up in my mother, oh, yeah, 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 whatever, come on, just come back to Rigpa. You know, just come back to Rigpa and it just, oh, it's coming out as a free gift, just stand back, you know, it's a geyser. And so that's my sense of it that these, these discursive meditations, they're basically designed to get us close enough to the source that that which they're designed to cultivate comes out spontaneously. Right? My sense of it. So we come back then to 
these preliminary practices. So, so preliminary to what? Tapping into the stream, tapping into right, into rikpa. I mean, by way of shamatha, by way of vipassana, and coming to rikpa. And these preliminary practices, I think, are just designed to throw us, throw off all the shackles that prevent us from getting there. Because what everybody is saying here, everywhere I go, it doesn't matter whether it's Singapore, Ulaanbaatar, it's it's Vietnam, uh, wherever it is, Porto Alegre, and so forth. What everybody is saying is, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. My father's not, but he's 90 years old. You know, he was busy, and now he's not. You know, but not a whole lot of energy either. Not at 90. It's hard. You don't have a whole lot of energy. Then. His mind is clear. He's very happy with that. I am too. But until you know, we're really pretty much have finished all of our great aspirations, our projects. We're all busy. And busy with what? And that's the that's what these common preliminaries are about, to be busy with something else. Busy with something that actually might what did he say? Busy with something that might bring about a definite reaping of a harvest for all future lifetimes. Be busy with that. Rather than being busy 24-7 with activities, with thoughts and concerns that at best are meaningful only within the bookends, only within the context, the confines of this life alone and actually have no significance whatsoever. There's zero as soon as you cross the threshold of death. So we're all busy with something. Everybody's busy with something. It's video games, it's betting on the horses, it's getting to work on time, it's taking care of your kids. Everybody's busy with something. Everybody's busy. Worms are busy. Worms are busy. You know, those of us been Phuket, you remember how busy those worms are trying to get across the little sidewalk? They're so busy. If you, if you try to have a conversation with one, they say, I'm busy. I'm trying to get to the other side of the sidewalk. What are you bugging me for? I'm very busy here. You know, and it's slow work, so you know, piss off. Got, I, and, and you ask, but why do you want to get there? And I think the answer would be, well, it's not where I came from. If that would be the worm's answer, I'm speculating. I'm trying to be wormish here. <laughs> it's not where I came from, and I didn't want to be where I was, so I'm going someplace else. That's why. Any more stupid questions? <laughs> Conversations with the worm. That'd be an interesting short story. <laughs> I'm well on my way, I think. Right? And so there it is. So there's the first one. Recognize the opportunity, the preciousness, the value of what we have right now, our current situation. Know your own situation for yourself. This is the first point. Okay, then we move on. You know it's coming, but let's see, let's see how he phrases it. Because this is really, this is the view of these, of these three topics from the perspective of a person who is in fact a Vidyadhara, who is dwelling in Rigved all the time. This is his view on that. He's inviting us to share his view. He's finding his own words inviting us. Would you like to see it from my perspective? The reality of impermanence and death? This is what it looks like to me. Let's see what he has to say. On this occasion, okay, this life, when you have such a bounty of opportunities in terms of your body, environment, friends, spiritual mentors, time and practical instructions, all of these, each one of those is an independent variable. Right? Your body. Do you have a body that can be used for practice? Not everybody does. Environment, Their environments would be very hard, very hard to practice dharma. Uh, there's a lot of them actually, right? Really hard. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to get, not get shot. You're just trying to 
get enough to eat in so many places in the world. You know, it's so easy to take for granted where we are, thinking somehow it's permanent. Friends, there are all kinds of friends. Friends who will want to put an AK-47 in your hand and join, join, the, join, the, you know, join the mission. All kinds of friends, but spiritual friends. And then spiritual mentors. These are guides, people who actually know the way and guide us there. Time, having leisure. Each of these is independent. You can have spiritual mentor and no time. You get a spiritual mentor, no body, environment, but no spiritual friends, right? Each of these, independent variable. So now you can, if you know math, then you can calculate, okay, any one of those, how rare is that? And then you would multiply by that second one. Okay, how rare is the second one? You multiply the first one by the second one. And then you have a third independent variable. You want to know how rare all three of them are? Multiply the first two by the, by the third one. And you can see this is getting extremely rare by the time he adds up each of these. He's included now spiritual teachers, and these are ones who actually know the path, can give you authentic guidance. And then on top of that, you have leisure. You can have all the preceding and yet have to be working 16-hour days. Like some people in New York City, I read in the New York Times about a year or two ago, one woman, black woman, holding down two jobs, living in a shelter, didn't have enough to rent, and she's holding him two jobs, working like 15-hour days. Got a couple of kids, I think. You know, so she's got. She might have all of these, but she has no time. She's trying to survive. She's just trying to pay, you know, pay bills. So time, and then oh yeah, practical instructions, the actual instructions that can get you from here to there, from here to enlightenment. One, two, three, four, five, six. Wow. I mean, just mathematically, that is extremely rare. Any one of them is rare, and then times six, it gets really extraordinarily rare. And so here's the opportunity, a bounty of opportunities. When you have such without procrastinating until tomorrow and the next day, arouse a sense of urgency as if a spark landed on your body. So we all know what's that like. If you've got a burning, it just landed on your arm. You don't think, well, I get to that after I finish my tea. <laughs> you know, or after this television program's over because it's so cool. No, that would be your immediate priority. So you're saying like that. Or a grain of sand fell in your eye. We all know what that's like. It comes up, becomes like center of this at the top thing. So I have that sense of urgency, immediacy. If you have not swiftly applied yourself to practice, examine the birth and death of other beings. So you can just look at seven billion human beings if you like. Or if, if your worldview is more encompassing than that, at least include the animals. But if your worldview is larger than that, take into account all the six realms and examine them. And reflect again and again on the unpredictability of your lifespan and the time of your death and on the uncertainty of your own situation. Uncertainty of your own situation. He's really countering this deeply ingrained tendency we have to look upon that which is by, by nature unstable, fleeting, fluctuating, not pausing even for a moment. And then the superimposition is, this is stable, this is enduring, I can count on that. My health, this relationship, my wealth, my job, my home. Imagine, because it gives us a sense of security. And we don't want to be anxious. It's very uncomfortable to be anxious. So let a, better live in a fool's paradise than in the harsh reality that nothing's certain at all. Nothing at all. And almost everything is out of our control. You know? So it raises very deep issues. How can you possibly be happy 
if you really let your drench your mind, saturate your mind in this awareness, this simple truth, these inconvenient truths of unpredictability of your own lifespan, just no guarantee. We all know it intellectually, that's easy. But actually, and so this is not some new information, but what he's suggesting here is a revolution in the way we view, we view, we attend to, we are aware of our own existence, our life, our presence in the universe, that we're viewing it differently. So this is not a catechism. This is not, have you gotten the beliefs right? This is, have you brought this into, have you woven this into yet, your view? I spent, what was it, six years in graduate school at Stanford in religious studies, and I taught for four years in religious studies department. In the religious studies department, they study all kinds of very profound truths, from Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and so forth, really profound truths. But as a graduate student, there's not even a suggestion that you can actually have that influence your view of reality. It's no, you're about to write a paper, you're going to show how clever you are, and you're going to get a good grade, and you're going to get, you're going to, you know, you're going to graduate with honors and you get, get, get a tenure-track position someplace and then you'll get tenure and then you'll... You know, that's what it's for. It's not a put-down, it's just nature of academia. You know, that nowhere is there any encouragement. In fact, if you encourage, you probably lose your job. You know, violation of church and state. And so this happens not only in academic universities, and I'm not criticizing that, but it happens in monasteries as well. It happens. Don't need to give examples, but it does happen. Geishis, Kembos, very erudite monks and so forth, learning and they can talk the talk and talk the talk and it never actually gets into the view. Totally mundane. But man, do they know the books. They can cite this and give these great Dharma talks, very well presented and so forth and so on. So I'm not criticizing anyone or any place. It, just, it, it is very easy to just let this slide right over. When's he going to be finished, on, finished with this so he can get under the good stuff? You know. Well, we're finished with this when it actually just permeates our view of just, you know, what's, what's the situation? And the situation is this body right now is pretty healthy and it could be dead tonight. This relationship with this person seems so stable and it can change in a finger snap. And everything else, everything we've acquired. So the unpredictability of lifespan, the unpredictability of the time of death, but of course the inevitability of death, and just generally the uncertainty of our situation. So, frankly, I think if one is not really practicing Dharma, does not have a strong conviction about the continuity of consciousness, and that we are, in fact, sowing the seeds for the harvest we will reap, meditating on this is just a sure-fire technique to develop general anxiety disorder. <laughs> I think that would be the, the realistic response. Is because, you see, every point where you feel confident, you shouldn't. <laughs> It's misplaced. It's a fool's paradise. It exists only in your mind. Reality is going to whack you in the face any moment now, and you're going to be surprised. Boo-hoo. You know, because you've been living in this little fantasy realm where things are stable and things, you know, to think, to, things turn out well, you know. And so, poor. So he's talking about a second revolution here. And it really raises very deep issues, interesting issues, interesting issues. In the light of these simple facts that he's just kind of laid out there like, there it is. How can you imagine being happy now? If you really are not just holding that thought, but you're viewing reality through that lens, that everybody you're seeing is going to die. It's only a question whether you die first or they die first, but again, that's just a given. Everybody you know is going to die. Every loved one you have, every object you have, everything you have 
everything, your body you have, your mind you have, your thoughts and memory, your sense of who you are, you're going to lose it all. And you can lose it all at any time. But what is certain is you're absolutely going to lose it, every bit of it. Now, what's your, what's your strategy for happiness? And the materialist has none. That's why I think this is really bad advice to give this type of meditation to a materialist or anybody that thinks that death is simply termination. I, w I wouldn't. I would say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to ignore that because it's just not fun to think about and I'm going to try to have as much fun as I can you know, until I'm either dead or wish I was dead and then I'll vote for euthanasia for the elderly. You know, that's what I would do. But this is for a life without dharma. For the life with dharma, this actually peels away what's left, what is still of value, what is actually can bring joy, happiness, sense of meaning, fulfillment, right in the midst of that, full-on 20-20 vision of this reality, and what's left, and the only thing left is dharma. I say, aha, that's it. So this is why I'm pretty sure it's Sakyabhantidawatana, the parting from the four clingings, Sakyabhantidawatana, oh yeah. min. If you are clinging to this life, you are not a Dharma practitioner. That's it. You can practice virtue. You can be a good person. There's no question about that. It's not even being debated. But are you a Dharma practitioner? A Dharma practitioner means you actually have a path. You're going somewhere, following the Four Noble Truths. But if you're fixating on clinging to this life, which means all the bounties of this life, all the sources of the security in this life, all the criteria of success in this life, and you're attached to them, you can definitely season that with acts of virtue, kindness, generosity, compassion, all kinds of virtues. There's no question. And that will be good karma. That doesn't mean you're having a bad rebirth. It just means you're not on any kind of path at all. You're just doing stuff, some stuff under the mental afflictions, and that's going to throw you down and other stuff under the impetus of virtues, and that's going to throw you up. But come what may, you're just being thrown. And wherever you're thrown, the karma that threw you there will be exhausted. And then, welcome to nowhere. <laughs> welcome to just being in the universe, wandering around as a sentient being, not knowing what the hell is going on. So, Dharma's what's left. Dharma's what's left. And you see, I, I, I did actually relate these to the verse from Shandideva. I don't need to read it again. You remember it, right? Surrendering everything all at once, right? That's nirvana. And my, my, my mind seeks dharma. My mind seeks nirvana. And so at death, we're not surrendering. We're being robbed. Your money or life. No, both. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even a choice. Both. Hand them over. And you say, I don't want to. Well, you know, the death, you know, Lord of Death just says, you know, you may be ready, may not ready, I'm ready. And, you know, we just get ripped off. And we get ripped off of everything all at once. So, the wise investor sells short on death. And that is, you know, sell it all off before you get there. Because you're going to lose it anyway. It's going to be worth zero. You look into your, you know, your investments in the investments of this life, and they're all going to be worth zero. They may be worth, like, Bill Gates has $79 billion right now, and counting, you know. Uh, that's a lot. But when he's dead, he's got zero. 
Somebody else has a lot, but he has zero. He's not going to be going through the bardo with a lot of other bardo people say, oh, there goes the rich guy. <laughs> he used to be rich, and now he's not. Now he's just one more sentient being who's forgetting that he ever was rich. So he won't even have the memory of being rich. That's really not rich. At least if you're rich and you remember it after you lost it, you say, well, I used to be rich. You know, I used to. You, know, you tell me, well, I used to be really famous, too, and I was really so limited. I used to look good, too. At least you could have a memory that you could tell your grandchildren about. But if you've lost the memory altogether, then you're just nobody. Celebrity, power, prestige, wealth, nothing. So sell short. Before it's all taken away, sell out. Sell, 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 sell. Give it all away. Give it all. And so when the Lord of Death comes, oh, you already gave it away. <laughs> I thought I was going to scare the shit out of you. And then you, and then you took all the fun out of being the Lord of Death. <laughs> you know? So this is why it said that a person of medium capacity, remember classic Lumran? Small capacity, medium capacity, great capacity. This is why it said a person of medium capacity who really has, let alone realizing nirvana, has really developed strong, authentic renunciation, dies with equanimity. Because it really, and it's just like this. Imagine you had a big investment portfolio and then you sell it all off, and then the stock market crashes from whatever it is, 17,500 Dow Jones down to, imagine down to Dow Jones going to zero. And just before it crashed, you sold up. Well, for myself, whatever. <laughs> Nothing. I sold up before it crashed. Sorry, you people weren't looking ahead, but you know, this stock market was going to crash. It's always a bubble. It's always a bubble. So that's why they have a great equanimity. But then they, sh that, that then they put a sattva. They don't have to look at it. Giving it all up and giving it all to sentient beings. Now, wouldn't that be cool? You did, didn't just sell out. You actually sold out and gave it all away. And then the stock market crashes. Then you'd be kind of really happy. Not just equanimity, though, I didn't lose anything, but like, whoa, wow, did I make the right move? When I still had oodles of stuff, I gave it all away, and people got benefit, and now the stock market crashed, and I got nothing. Whew, cool. Way to go, dude. Give me five. <laughs> As you die, you know, you'd want to go, give me five, dude. This way the Buddha Santa is happy when he dies, or she dies. Well done, dude. Gave it away just in time. You know. And now you're ready for something better. Because if you're dying as a bodhisattva, that's the nature of the bodhisattva path. It does go from better to better. It's a cool thing. That's what gives, it gave Shandadeva the semshuk, the strength of heart, to follow the bodhisattva way of life. When he was thinking, oh my goodness, it takes so long. Because he's thinking three countless eons. Vajrayana doesn't come in the bodhisattvatara. He's thinking sutrayana, three countless eons. Or I think his holiness said it could be as long as seven countless eons. I'm not sure I really care. It's just so long. And Shantideva is looking at the prospect of that. You know, like, Man, I could get out of here so quickly compared to three or seven or eleven countless eons. If I'm just going for my own liberation, man, this is going to be like three shakes of a lamb's tail and I'm out of here. You know? And then it's eternal peace. He's kind of looking at that and then he's looking at the prospect of three countless eons. Kind of like, oh man. 
And then the thought occurs to them, yeah, but every single lifetime is meaningful and they just get better and better and better. It's a path of joy and not just a path to joy. So this is really, this is the meaning of this. It's not to ruin your day. It's not just to flatten all your attachments. But it's to open wide the door so you can actually become a Dharma practitioner. You can actually, when you give up all clinging to this life, there's something left. You didn't just give away everything good and then be destitute, but there's still something left. And what's left is all of Dharma. So this is the second point. And what does he say? Hmm. Meditate on this until you have definitely and integrated with your mind. So again, in a way, there's no new information here. He didn't really tell us anything we didn't know, but he is telling us things that we prefer not to think about because it ruins everything. Insofar as we're just following hedonic pursuits, mundane way of life. It takes all the joy out. Then it's depression, it's anxiety, it's insomnia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and probably a lot of ADHD. So, meditate until it is your view until you have brought about a fundamental shift in your way of viewing yourself and reality, every relationship you have and every sense you being ever encounter. I remember one, I've told this story many times, but it's a really short story. But it's Atisha, you know, Atisha who had been a monk his, like, like his whole adult life, I'm sure. He was in Tibet. And remember, there was a couple, man and wife, they were having marital problems, you remember? Having marital problems. And they came to this monk who'd never been married for marital advice. People come to me for marital advice, you know, go figure, but a teacher, you know, never been married at all. And so his marital advice was, I thought just some of the best marital advice I've ever heard in my life from this monk. He said, be nice to each other, you're going to be dead soon. <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> you know, the relationships kind of like start grinding and grinding when you think, oh, it's never going to end. She doesn't change. He doesn't love her. No. I can have this. Oh, oh. Wait a minute. It can end any moment. Oh, in that case, that's different. It was friendships, everything else. You'll be dead soon, so be good. Yeah, let's stop there. That's, you have one day to bring about that revolution. But it's a big one. It really changes everything. It really, really, really does. It's profound. So, I'd like to especially, um, so we have better time for discussion, but I'd like to especially invite those who, um, with whom I'm not having weekly interviews. I'd really like to get to know you, because I won't, obviously, in the same way as the people I meet with every week. And so, any questions are open, but especially those, yes, please, and please tell me your name. And the microphone's coming. Uh, establishing the counting and uh, settling down 
and I'll settle to a point where uh, my sort of regular thoughts, uh, you know, dissipate, and then uh, at that time, breath's generally quite shallow, and I'll get into a point where um, almost like I guess what you referred to as before is hypnagogic imagery. Hypnagogic, yes. Mm -hmm. So sure. thoughts and imagery that not so much associated with my thinking about lunch or right. You know, just coming up, hypnagogic is a perfect, yeah. But I don't really have necessarily a, a connection with, and mm -hmm. they sort of start to occur, and I'm mm -hmm. still aware of my breathing uh, and establishing accounting. Mm -hmm. But after a period of doing that, um, my I'm sort of almost watching myself having trouble counting. Uh -huh. So it kind of gets a little bit... I'm, I'm aware that I'm having a struggle counting, but... Uh -huh. I don't know what to do at that point. Clear enough, if sure. My object starts to get a little um, yeah. loose, and I don't really know if there's a redirection that kind of needs to take place. Understood, that. understood. Uh, I will paraphrase the question for the people listening on podcast. Uh, but one, just one brief question to you before I respond, and that is the resistance. Can you identify the the nature of the resistance? Why you don't really feel like, yeah, why there's some resistance to counting? Can you identify why? What do you prefer to do? Um, probably, probably either space out or it's probably on the laxity side. I feel, mm -hmm. um, but it's almost. Uh, what would I prefer to do? Um, if there's resistance to that, that probably means you'd rather do something else. It's not so much a resistance. It's almost like a, a more in the kind of. I'm, 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 it's more non-consistent, like I'm, I'm struggling to find ground, like I'm more dis... <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, it doesn't feel like a resistance, it's more like a, a lack of ability, or like a... a or oh, lack of ability to count, like it, rising to the occasion, so to speak. Yeah, Something like, I'm, like uh, I'm, I'm drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I can't. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to say 22 and then, you know, 20... Comes out. Right, right. Understood, yeah. Right. So, understood, yeah. So, with the podcast, there's a gentleman here who's taking drugs. <laughs> no, 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 I got that wrong. <laughs> I just wanted to see whether you're listening. <laughs> now, getting into the practice of uh, the mindfulness of breathing as we did this morning, so no, no, no need to recap that. At some point, the, the mind becomes, the, the breathing becomes more shallow, the mind becomes somewhat quieter, and rather than having just the ordinary obsessive chains of thinking where one thought triggers another and they have kind of a storyline to them, that all kind of melts away and something more like just hypnagogic imagery, just sporadic thoughts, images coming up, pretty mellow, just kind of like these just little flashes of this and that coming up. And at this point, then Sam, mentioned that I find it hard to kind of arouse myself, to inspire myself, to continue the counting. I just kind of don't feel like it. I'd rather just kind of rest there. Something like that? Okay, yeah. What I would suggest is experiment. There's not, like, there's not one right answer, but experiment. Um, there, can, there is a point. There is a point. I will simply say this. There's a point at which, when you're really getting into the flow, and you are attending to the whole body, and that is specifically the whole body of the breath. You're there. You're just kind of coursing with it, the whole course of inhalation, the whole course of exhalation, back and forth, kind of really in the flow of it. 
that if at that point you're introducing one, two, it's kind of like in, an unwelcome interruption. It's breaking the flow. When it's basically, I was doing fine, why don't you please be quiet? Because I was kind of enjoying the flow. So that's a possibility. Uh, in which case, in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, it makes more sense to just stop counting. If it works, don't fix it. You know that phrase, if it works, don't fix it. Well, if it's working, you're not falling into subtle or coarse laxity or excitation. It's going right down the center. Then don't mess with it. If you start to get derailed, and again, falling into, get carried away into coarse excitation again, you're losing the object, then of course introduce it again. That's one possibility. But another possibility is that, bear in mind the very term shamatha means quiescence, tranquility, serenity, peace, like that. And so if you've gotten into this point where the mind, your awareness is really quite peaceful, and you have these rather unobtrusive uh, thoughts coming up that don't have any pull, they're just kind of coming up, it's peaceful. And we like peace. My mind seeks nirvana. Well, this is a faint facsimile of nirvana. It's peaceful. In which case, it is probably laxity. In which case, then, to punctuate, it's a nice verb, to punctuate that flow of mindfulness of the sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen and so forth, punctuate it with really in a staccato fashion, very sharp, pointed, one, like that, mentally, one. Really sharp. Like that, like again, like a speed bump, boom, boom, and it's finished. One, and not one, like that, but one. And then sharpen the whole thing up. Sharpen the whole thing up. And that is, as you're releasing, you're releasing vigilantly. You're releasing and then seeing whether you've really, like if you're sweeping dust out of a house, you're seeing whether you're sweeping all the dust out or whether you're missing some spots. You're sweeping it all out. Well, every outbreath is like sweeping the dust out. And that is, leave no thought behind. You know, don't hold them, just release them all. So it's just whew, silent as you're breathing out. You're releasing them all, even the little itsy-bitsy ones, even the little hypnagogy images and thoughts, little chit-chat that has not much pull. You too. Kind of like, yeah, you too. Again, like that little icon of the, good, just gone. And then, as you're breathing in, then I'll do it visually. That's kind of an intense gaze. I'm not angry. You can say there's no anger there, not stern, but I'm taking a lot of interest. Kind of like that. You're really attending closely, which means there's no, when you're attending like that, there's no, there's no time for chit-chat. Like if you're in heavy traffic and somebody just cut in front of you, you're not going to start a conversation. You're going to try to avoid a collision because it catches your attention. So as you're releasing, you release fully. And that includes all the hypnagogic imagery, just gone. Because again, you're resting your awareness in a non-conceptual space, and in non-conceptual space, hypnagogic imagery doesn't arise. That's taking place in the space of the mind, but we're attending to the tactile space. And there's no hypnagogic imagery there. In other words, this is a distraction. In other words, release it, and release all of it with every out-breath. And then as the breath flows in, then you're really sharp. Here you're exerting yourself. Here you're kind of, okay, now you're bench-pressing, like that, attending closely. And then, release. So sharpen the whole thing up. Okay, that should do it. You can report back later, see how it works, okay? Good. Now, anything else coming up? Yes, please, Jenny. 
So I had my tube with Glenn today and I did... I, I, did, I didn't wait that bad. I had my tube with Glenn today and I... I, had, I still missed it. I had my tutorial with, tutorial with Glenn. Oh, wonderful. Okay, yeah. yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'm ready to write down the complaints, Mark. Go ahead. What's <laughs> <laughs> up? And um, I had said to him while I was changing a couple of things, starting to try to sit upright and um, to go eyes open. Ah, and right. had read in the book, you know, page 68, whatever. Okay, about four finger breaths out from the nose, you know. Oh, yeah, be careful right of there. that one. Be careful and of that. And said, ooh. Yeah, that, that's what I was <laughs> thinking too. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, why? <laughs> well, why would we say ooh? <laughs> One is when you're sitting up, at, <coughs> the suggestion is you know, perhaps about arm's length, um, you know, sort of about out there, sort of gazing up or, or down, depending on your level of excitation. <coughs> but when you lie down on your back, that <coughs> becomes kind of hard because you've got the roof and with the lighting you know, in your eyes, it's, I'm finding it a little bit hard to fix the gaze adequately in the supine position right. in these conditions. Right, right. Well, one thing is when you're in control of the environment, definitely don't have any fluorescent lights in your field of vision. I mean, quite seriously. You, know. uh, you don't want any real light source in your field of vision, at least nothing you know, fluorescent or any kind of bright light, because it just grabs the attention. So you, you'd want, actually, it's best to not have any source of light, light bulb, in your field of vision. It doesn't mean you have to be in the dark, but have the, the source of light outside your field. So it's just smooth and then uninteresting. Right, when you're in control. Uh, here, um, you know, we, we are the ones, I'm, I, I don't decide, but we decide whether to keep the lights on or not. But um, in a situation like this, I would be thinking very carefully about purchasing a mindfold. You know what a mindfold is, don't you? Yeah, it's just one of these, um, it's a mask, and it doesn't press on the eyes, it covers the eyes, and it knocks out about 99% of the light. It's very effective, and they're cheap probably $20, $20 Australian, get them on Amazon. But they cover, but it's a very, very comfortable headband, and it's called Mindful, and it covers the eyes, but your eyes can be wide open, and you're in the pitch dark, very close to pitch dark. So, really useful, because it is helpful to have the eyes open. But then this just, there we go, there's, there's one exactly. Everybody's laughing at my modeling abilities. I don't know why. <laughs> but there it is. But when I'm putting them on, I mean, really, um, I mean, it's going to take me some while to see that it's not absolutely pitch black. Because it's really, really good. And you can see a big sponge there, so it's no discomfort. So I, um, I carry those pretty much wherever I travel on long distance flights. I put those on, put my, uh, my noise cancelling headphones on. I'm in retreat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So for purposes of being here, because obviously I won't be able to do that in the time, first go back to eyes shut, simple. For mindfulness of breathing, sure. For mindfulness of breathing. And for the other, <clears throat> have the eyes hooded. If the eyes hooded, leave a little, little bit. So if you're lying on your back, but your eyes are really hooded, hopefully there's not a light source here. So the light source is above you. Just let a bit of light come in. But again, our sessions here are short, they're only 24 minutes. And so in your room, then control the environment. Uh, soft lighting is generally good, unless you're falling into dullness and laxity, 
In which case, then let, let the sunlight in, open the window, let some fresh air in, some light in, and so forth. Okay? Experiment with that. Good. Oh, yeah, maybe one more tonight. Yes, Roberta. The microphone's coming. Okay. I would like to know if the superimposition is good to just at the beginning or also for, for be at the beginning and for beginner mm -hmm. or also at a certain stage. Yeah. I would say it's especially good at the end because when you die, you're probably going to be lying down. <laughs> Even the Buddha lie down. He, I mean, he could have been sitting up, clearly. I mean, a lot of great yogis die sitting up, right? So I'm sure the Buddha could have if he wanted to. And so he chose, among the four postures, to lie down, right? Now, he was lying down on his side, but nevertheless, he was lying down. And so I would just, you know, include that as part of your repertoire and develop the ability through training so that you can maintain just as much clarity in the supine position as you can in the sitting position. And then, if, if you're, you're bound to get ill sometime, you may get injured sometime, and when you're ill or injured, it just may be difficult to be sitting up. Either you're in pain or you just don't have the energy. And then eventually, you know, we'll die. And most of us will die lying down. In which case, if you've already just aced this, which means you've really gotten very familiar with really seriously meditating, really maintaining the flow of awareness, uh, in the supine position, then you're set for your final meditation. So there's very, very good reason. Now, there are meditations, right? for example, in the advanced stages of Dzogchen, the Turtgel, the direct crossing over, they have very specific postures to adopt, three of them in particular. None of them are lying down. None of them are lying down. But that's much, that's manana manana, a long time. But even up to Rigpa, you can practice, you can practice texture, non-meditation, texture, you can practice the cutting through in the supine position, sitting, standing, and so forth. So it's actually good in all different phases. Uh, there are very good reasons, again, why, I mean, you just read the writings of Marpa or Milarepa, the great Dumo practitioners, why, you know, the seven-point Varochana posture really has great advantages to it. And there's no question about that. And if you can be comfortable, that's just, that's the, that's the default mode. That's kind of, that's just, we kind of assume this is the best, you know, the seven-point and all, get, click, click, get, get all seven. Just assume that's the best. There's a reason why they're sitting in that position and not lying on it, you know, lying down or whatever in the classic presentations. Uh, it is the best until it's just so uncomfortable that it's being, it's distracting, you know. Or you're doing injuring injuring your body. I know some people have spent so much time in cross-legged their, their knees don't work anymore because they weren't exercising. They're just sitting, sitting, sitting. So one of my lamas, I keep an on, but it's a wonderful lama, just a wonderful lama. And he was just serving sentient beings all day. Get up early in the morning, meditate, go back to sleep, and then just all day. He was just, just serving everyone. But he never exercised. And he, said, he kind of was laughing at himself a little bit. And he said, you know, and he's getting older. And he said, you know, after a while, you can no longer walk a mile. But you think, oh, that's okay. I don't really need to walk a mile. Then after a while, you can't walk a quarter of a mile. And he said, well, I don't really need to walk a quarter of a mile. After a while, you can't walk even 100 meters. You say, well, you don't really need to walk 100 meters. Because the legs just, you know, they're just losing all their muscle tone. And so it's not really an advantageous thing to do. St. Francis of Assisi, he definitely had an I-it relationship with his body. He really did, big time. He was really ascetic, like Milarepa style, really ascetic. 
And he died young, in his 40s or so, really young. And he apologized. He referred to his body as brother ass, like brother donkey. You know, that's definitely an Ayat relationship. And when he was just about dead, he recognized retrospectively he hadn't been treating his body very well. And he apologized to Brother Ass. I'm sorry I didn't take you care, care of you better. Sorry. And then he died. So you want to balance it. Keep it balanced. And so I'm so glad, really, it was such a generous uh, gesture. And I, I'm part of at least two of you, I think, teaching some yoga here. That's really good. So whether it's walking, whether it's Tai Chi, whether it's yoga, just any kind of thing. Uh, really good to maintain that balance. Good diet, good diet, good exercise. So, like that. Okay, we just have one more common revolution to do. And then three. Well, you'll see, we, they really, he really raises the stakes. He goes to a much, another whole dimension. We're about to go to suffering and karma, of course. So we'll deal with that tomorrow. Maybe more, I'm not sure. But then when he goes to the uncommon preliminaries, boy, that's when you see. Boy, he's really digging deep. It's really deep. If you can really do those, anybody can learn them. You, really, you can learn them in five minutes. That's, that's easy. I, I understand. I understand. No problem. I got it. Yeah, goose, but I, yeah, check. Uh, oh, my brother, Dhamma, yeah, they're all virus and dakini. Sure, sure. Why not? And also to being like my mother as well. Sure, why not? I guess so. Why not? I don't know. Maybe. You know. And then you're finished with them, right? <laughs> well, if you want to make sure there's zero impact from the uncommon preliminaries, that's the way to do it. I got it figured out intellectually. That's all I needed. I can now write a paper on the uncommon preliminaries. But boy, any one of those three, we'll get to them soon, but boy, any one of those three, that changes everything. I mean, it, but it's not easy, and it really takes some deep, deep roots. So we'll get to that. But there's good reason. I mean, this is a Vidyata that's writing. There's a good reason why he's saying each of these points, indispensable, indispensable. You can still practice, of course. You can do any of the practices. But will they take root? Will they take deep root? so that you really set on that path. He's basically saying, forget about it. Without these preliminaries, you can do the practice, you can do the practice, you can do a three-year retreat, you can practice 10 hours a day, 16 hours a day, whatever, for a while. But the root system won't be there. And when the retreat's over, it's over. And you're back where you were, with some good karma. So, so instead of going through 200 pages of volume one, preceding A Spacious Path of Freedom, we're looking at six points. So, it's good stuff. All now so, 6 o'clock. So, when all of the day is over, just want to say something I've said so many times in the past, in week-long retreats and so forth, and that is, when the day is finished, you brush your teeth, you've done everything you wanted to do for the day, and you're really sleepy, ready for bed, then I really strongly encourage you, make the habit of this, it's a good habit. Get under the, get under the cup and go into the supine position. And have one more session. And maybe it'll be five minutes. You'll, you'll practice. What I suggest is practice until you get some clear indicator. It's bound to be one of two things. In my experience, it's bound to be one of two things. Either you're just losing clarity. And that's because you're tired and you need some sleep. It's not because you're a bad meditator. It's because you, you know, you're not at a point where you don't need sleep anymore. And we, when you see that you're just losing clarity, then let clarity be lost and roll over and get a good night's sleep. And the other one is not quite the loss of clarity, it's just that the mind is kind of going fuzzy wuzzy talky talky. You know, kind of like, no, like mumbling, the mumbling of the mind. You know, not just falling into laxity where it's quiet, but just 
At that point, okay, the conversation is finished. <laughs> and roll over and get a good night's sleep. But practice until you, in practice, so whether it's five minutes, for people who are of lung constitution, a lot of energy, a lot of vata, it may take longer, maybe it's 20 minutes. But it's a really sweet way to make a nice segue, a smooth segue, from the waking state to really feeling drowsy. And I'm vata, and I find bow, and I do that, and then then I mentally snap my fingers, the session's over, I'm f- I fall asleep very quickly. Right? Whereas if I don't, if I'm bringing a lot of activities to mind, and I met this person in that conversation, and this one, that one, and so forth, then that conversation can go on for a while. And that's you know, just wasting time. So try that. Try that. Mindfulness of breathing in that mode. And especially this way, 80% just still, very sweet. Very sweet. Okay, very good. So have a good night's sleep. See you tomorrow.